Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. We'll start with our quote of the day. This was said by Marie Matisse. An artist must never be a prisoner. An artist should never be a prisoner of himself, prisoner of style, prisoner of reputation, or a prisoner of success. Hello everyone, my name is Addie Hirschton. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you move forward. On the show, I interview a wide variety of artists so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophy. Today's podcast features an interview with the artist Stephanie Smith and the ancient story of the oak tree and the moon. Announcements. So what's going on in Addie's world? (laughs) Um, A lot going on because it's spring and things are really cooking. It's not quite warm here in Indianapolis, but but, uh, we're striving toward spring and uh, things are getting busy. Um, let's see what's coming up. At the Whole Soul Center in Indianapolis, I will be teaching mandala painting February 25th. Isn't that a perfect tie-in to today's topic? Talking with Stephanie Smith. Um, and on March 25th, I will be teaching painting your personal symbols. Um, I've also got at the Indianapolis Art Center, uh, another intuitive painting session starting up in a few more weeks. I'll have collage paintings starting up as well toward the end of the spring. So for those of you in the area, I hope to see you there. Um, I do have a free online class. It's on my online class website. It's called The Seven Secrets to Success for Artists. And if you like my chat with Stephanie today, this might appeal to you because um, one of the themes of our chat is figuring out what it means to be successful and uh, specifically we ended up talking a lot about if you're selling your art is that success what what does it mean to be successful and maybe we need to redefine it for ourselves and the online class i've got on alchemy of painting it's uh prompts you through so you can figure out what success really is going to mean for you Okay, so let's talk about our guest speaker today, Stephanie Smith. So Stephanie Smith uh, was recently a speaker at um, a TEDx talk in the river, and the topic was on art as a spiritual practice, what she has learned from making $10,000. Yes, $10,000, that's a lot of mandalas. And in our interview, we'll talk about what the heck a mandala is. 
She shares her processes, practices, and personal stories with students in workshops, at spiritual retreats and wellness centers, um, and as a guest presenter at local schools and universities in her area. You can find out more about Stephanie Smith at biffybeans.com. That's B-I-F-F-Y B-E-A-N-S. Now, without further ado, here is my interview with Stephanie Smith. Okay, well, welcome Stephanie Smith. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me, Addie. Oh, no problem. I'm excited to chat with you. So what's the story of how you became an artist? Hmm. It's always a really good question because I'm not exactly sure where things started. You know, like where I think I think I was one of those people who was always kind of like born to be doing something creative um, and like how people define what an artist is, because <clears throat> I think you could be creative forever. Like you could be doing all different kinds of things. I think it changes somewhat when you decide to put yourself out there in a professional capacity. So I've been doing one thing or another pretty much my whole life. I made and sold jewelry. um from like 2000 to 2005, then I was then I was doing uh, different things connected to music, and I was doing some different writing projects, and I started doing the mandala, drawing and teaching and all kinds of things like that around the beginning of 2007, and then in 2011 was when I applied to become a resident artist at a local arts and education center where I had a private studio for six years. So I think that that might kind of encompass, you know, some of the more professional aspects of what's been going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you did this crazy cool project where you made 10,000 mandalas um and and you you did this TEDx talk about it which is great and everybody should go and listen to it but you talk about art as a form of meditation explain that to us and what you've learned from it oh sure absolutely so before i got to the mandala making i was always a, a really avid doodler but aside from that I was doing a lot of hand drumming. I had come across the whole like drum circle concept <clears throat> probably around like, I don't know, like 2002 or so. And there was a, a man that I became aware of who was teaching these different workshops, these different drumming workshops. And, you know, th- there were things where you'd go in and you'd play simple rhythms and everybody would be, you know, doing this together and it sounded really good and it felt really good. And he wove a lot of different philosophical stuff into, into the teachings and a lot of the work was very trancey, meditative, and it just made me kind of feel, uh, very present in a way that I had never done before. Like, it just was kind of like a very new thing to me to be able to, like, be so, um, kind of like in depth in something where I could either quiet the mind or go deeper into it. And so what I really loved about the drumming was that there was, you know, it was rhythmic, like, you know, a pattern would repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And so right around 2007 was when I first saw, I was on the photo 
the photo sharing website called Flickr, and you know you can upload your art, and people can people can comment on it, they can ask questions, and there was a man who had posted an image of what he called a mandala, and it took me a really long time to discover that that might not be the correct way of saying pronouncing the word, but I've just I've used mandala for so many years that it's very difficult for me to switch and say mandala. <clears throat> But so he described it as a mandala, and he said that it was a meditative practice, that it was typically done in one sitting, that you started at the center and worked your way out and stopped when you were finished. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, like, you know, I had art supplies, and, and I, like I said, I love to doodle, and I like things that were rhythmic. And so I gave it a shot, and I was like, you know, after I got hooked and made so many like right off the bat, I was like, this is like a different form of drumming. Like it's a, a different form of, of repetitive rhythmic practice. And it really lets me get really quiet. And I have one of these brains that like never shuts off. You know, there's always something bouncing around in there. And it's, and I find it very challenging to kind of like, you know, um, really kind of like get things done sometimes. So, this practice, you know, like I never really had, I never really had what I would personally consider to be a meditative practice. Like even when I was drumming, it's not like I sat down every day and did that. It would be, you know, here or there or this workshop or when these groups of people came together or sometimes I'd go out on the porch with the mandala making could be done like all the time. You know, anytime that I could like sit and have like a pencil and a piece of paper in front of me, it could happen. And so like, I literally just, you know, started and uh, haven't really stopped. And, and, you know, many of them were like smallish in sketchbooks and journals and things like that. And then others were, you know, very, very large and painted. And I've, I've done them in, in many different forms, but just by allowing yourself to be focused on a single task becomes a meditative practice. You know, I, I've, I've told people, you know, like, if you really like baking cookies, if you like knitting, like anything that just kind of like really takes your focus is a meditative practice. And so, you know, with art making, one could use something like the mandala because of its repetition, or if you're painting a landscape and you're very mindful of being present, that's a meditative practice too. So it could be the rhythmic aspect that gets you, you know, quiet and present and focused, or it could just be a a mindful meditation of just, you know, being fully present and aware of all the different actions you're making while you're doing your thing. Definitely. I quite agree. And I would say too, yeah, um, for me, making a landscape painting is a very meditative practice because Mm -hmm. I have to be you know, aware of my surroundings, really noticing, um, getting in the groove of it. Um, and, and there's also a sense of you have to let go of it if it doesn't work out. Sure. <laughs> Which yeah. That's a certain spiritual lesson to find. Yeah. To not be, to not be so focused on the end product. Right. Because it takes a lifetime to master everything. You can't get it right. You're not going to get it right every single time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the practice that you put in, yeah, there's, there's, there's many aspects to it. And that's one of the things that's always been very important to me is to not focus on the end result, like ever. 
Right. You know, and, and, and when I do, it just kind of like hijacks the process into, and, and becomes something different, which is okay because it's all a learning experience. Sure. But I think, I think that, you know, the more you could be just really present with the practice. I, I looked at your work and I, I believe you do impressionistic landscapes. And, sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, like when you, when you're making your marks, like your paint marks, you know, that's, that's repetition. You know, like that's, that's focused and you're, you're looking, you're seeing, um, you know, so this isn't just limited to something that's abstract, you know, like when you're, when you're seeing, like you get into a flow and, and that flow I think is, is what you're looking for or a zone, you know, whatever you want to call it. Right. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to ask you, one of the things I struggle with sometimes is I'm making a piece and then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I have a show coming up. I'd love to take this there and I'd love to, you know, potentially sell it because I am a professional. And, um, and so, but, you know, of course, the best work happens when we're just in the flow, we're in the groove and we're not thinking about that end product and that end result, um, and whatever benefits we may or may not end up getting from it later. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's something I think about a lot, and I have recently been teaching classes that are on um, selling your art and, you know, how to be professional and all of that. Um, but what what are your thoughts and feelings? Do you, do you, is this something that you think about, too? <laughs> it's it's funny because I thought to myself, well, what if she'll ask about that? Because, um, you know, uh, so for six years... You know, I, I had this studio and one of the ways that I thought, you know, would be helpful to keep the studio sustainable was by selling the work. Right. This is this is a really complicated subject. And what I've kind of come to is this. This is the best I got right now. Okay. You have to really think about why you're creating. That's really important. But why you're creating. Because if you're doing it for spiritual healing, if you're doing it to grow, it gets really sticky when you decide to take that work and sell it before you fully processed the work or the reasons for doing the work. It gets really sticky and in the way because now what I've found is you'll have people come to you who want to buy something simply because they think it'll look good in their homes. They're not necessarily coming in and and making the connect. Like, of course, you might have friends and people who hear the stories and then, you know, want to buy something because you know to, to make a deeper connection between themselves and the artist. Right. But I think, like, you know, when you have people who just want to buy something because they think it's pretty or beautiful or will match their homes, and they have dialogue with you about that, but you haven't fully processed the thing behind the work, right? it's really sticky. And, and I think the best thing I can say about that is in my, this is only really in my experience. I think like if you're doing work for those purposes, it's really challenging to do that work and then, and then put it right in the show or put it right in an exhibition. Unless, unless the exhibition part you're considering that to be part of the growth process. Right. Otherwise, I think it would not be a, di- a bad idea to do the work and then sit on it for a while. 
you know, wait until it kind of loses some of the, the emotional impact of, of why you were doing it or what's in there. It just, these are just all different kinds of things that need to be like considered and looked at because, um, it's really, you know, like it's a whole different thing when you now have to take this thing that was, was very deep and very complicated and write like a trite little blurb on Etsy to get people interested in wanting to buy it and then assigning a price to it. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I worked in retail for 10 years. So like, I, I totally understand, you know, the whole, the whole retail aspect of, of this and, you know, the professional putting yourself out there, like good photographs and, you know, being able to write and, exp and like explain all these things. But you have to really think about like why, why you're doing all of this. And it's, it was one of the reasons, I mean, there's many reasons why I decided to close my studio, but that was definitely one of them. It got too complicated because I feel like if you're really trying to do something to grow, that gets in the way. And so then you just think about, well, what other ways can I sustain myself as an artist? I can teach, I can get another job, and then I don't have to complicate, you know, the work and putting it out for sale. I also don't have to think about the exhibition process of I need to do this on this kind of canvas. It needs to be wired this way for hanging. I need to think about mats and buying mats and frames and things like that. Like all that, it gets in the way. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it just, I think everybody doesn't have to sell everything to get what they need mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from the process. Yeah. And a lot of the, this spiritual mandala type creating in the east you make it and then you destroy it like the tibetan exactly. monks that do the sand mandalas they make it and then and they spend a lot of time and then they destroy yes, they it and the end um yeah so it's about it's about the it's about the it's about the process you know they're doing that they're making those mandalas to heal humanity they're they're devotional you know, creations to like, you know, better the world. And it isn't about the end result. Mm. It's, it's just not. Huh. So, okay. Explain to us more about the mandala, its history, its meaning. And you just said, you know, those Tibetan monks, they're making it to heal the world. How does it heal the world? Well, I think, you know, whenever you, well, this is, I don't mean to like, you know, to be religious in, in speaking this, but I mean, the power of prayer or devotion, I, I think just focusing positive energy towards something can help it change. Okay. You know, like we just had like millions of women all over the country and all over, you know, getting together and, and putting energy towards something positive. And I think, I think that that's the way that you heal the world is, is by just mind, you know, like being mindful of yourself in it, doing actions to that are positive in um, intention. And, and that can, you know, go a long way. I mean, just think about like, you know, how we act and how we treat people. And, and just by being mindful, like by having positive intention, like, you know, interactions between people can sometimes, you know, improve. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I'm, you know, of course, like 
really simplifying what the monks do. I mean, they go to they go to school, you know, first to become a monk, and then they, you know, they go to art school before they can even create the mandalas. Like they have to learn about all the symbolism and all of the colors and how to actually do it and the designs and the meanings of the meanings of the designs. And so my, through my experience, because I've been I've been kind of like studying and learning about the mandala from the time that I was invited to teach. And so that was about like 2009. So for about nine years, I've kind of been trying to understand more about the mandala. And though the word itself is Sanskrit, which is an ancient Hindu language, and it can be translated in a bunch of different ways. I think a lot of people associate a radially symmetrical design, one that kind of goes from the center out and like has repeating patterns. Like that's what they see a mandala is these days because of all like the coloring books and the monks who travel and, and, and do the same mandalas. But I, I think that the, the word itself really is, is about whole, um, is about circle, is about like, um, um, connection, you know, like, uh, uh, like the way that we're all kind of connected to each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, there are sacred circular designs similar to the mandala in pretty much every culture I've ever looked at. So even though, you know, like the, the Eastern, the Eastern mandala, uh, like the Tibetan Buddhist monks do, or they have these different kind of tapestries. I don't really know how to say the word, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna butcher it, but they do these task tapestries with these designs that also, you know, like they depict the house of God or, you know, um, like there are things that are beyond the, the, the geometric colorful sand mandalas they do. So aside from, from those which kind of would be like maybe the origin or the origins or at least the, the place where they're most well known, you know, you've got things all over the world from, you know, Celtic labyrinths, uh, can be considered a type of mandala. You've got Stonehenge, you know, like this, this whole giant structure, which is in a mandala form. Um, the rose, the stained glass rose windows in Catholic churches. Mm-hmm. There are giant round kites that are flown down in South America to honor the, the dead. They're just, they're, they're kind of everywhere and depicted in different forms of sacred art, sacred circular art. And, um, that's, and I think a lot of times that there, there is so much of that because it's reflecting a very common shape in nature. Like when you look at a lot of the ways that a flower blooms, or if you cut a tree and you, you like you see the rings of a tree, this repeating, this kind of like radially symmetrical repeating pattern is found all throughout nature. The eye of a hurricane, you know, all, all different ways. And I think that people probably look at those things and then replicate it in this, these, you know, these sacred circular art forms which to me gets back to that whole idea of everything being connected and everything and everyone being connected, which is to me kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I think, um, we, we, I was about to say we, but you know, I, at least I shouldn't speak for other people, but I get very caught up in there's me and this person over here. You know, we have moments of anger and we have moments of separateness. 
But I think that when we can really see how we're all united and we're all more alike than our differences, um, and I guess what's coming to my mind right now are, you know, more like political type, like there's different tribes. But yeah. It, but, but, you know, the real breakthroughs happen and the real growth happens when we can see, oh, there isn't me really too. a separateness. Yeah. 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 Me too. Like me too. And I don't mean, you know, just in a general, you know, like I get angry too. You know, I, I want more out of life too. Like there, there are so many different things that when, when you just allow yourself to, to see that you're not alone in your, in your joy as well as your suffering, you know, that, that we're all really trying to just get to the same place. We're all, we're all trying to evolve. We're all trying to like maybe, you know, draw a little enlightenment into our lives. And, uh, and when you can, when you can, see those things i think you know it it allows us to be better people you know like walk differently in the world etc and so you know these different types of practices you know a meditative practice like drumming or yoga or mandala making i I feel like it you know like these are sometimes solitary activities you know we're the only one on our own mat you know like on our own yoga mat but yet by doing these things, we, we go out into the world and we walk in a way that maybe, you know, allows us to be more open and, and make better connections with people. Mm. I call it, you know, it's like doing our own work, you know, like, you know, do, do, do the work that's for us. And I, I think that there are a lot of people out there that, that forget sometimes that you need to do your own work first. That, that, you know, you can go out and you can want to change the world, but if you're not really starting at home and doing the things that'll, that'll make you a stronger, you know, a stronger person that it kind of, you know, it doesn't always have its longevity or, or the results that, you know, you're hoping for. Right. Yes. Ah, right on. (laughs) Okay. So, um, in your bio, you mentioned Carl Jung, who I love, and I've been to read up on him more and get books on him and whatnot. Um, what are your thoughts on his theories and his symbolism? And have you incorporated that into your artwork? Well, and if not, that's okay. What's <laughs> if not, that's okay. <laughs> oh well. So when I talk about Jung, I think about the shadow. You know, I think about every good thing and every bad thing that's in like every person that we all have the capability of, of being everything good, bad, and indifferent. Like that's, that's the kind of stuff with Jung that really resonates with me, like all the shadow stuff. Okay. But I also know him as kind of like the guy who, who really brought the mandala out of the East. I don't even really know where he got it from. I don't, believe he traveled there like I'm, I'm really not sure but he was the person who started you know he he began himself drawing these you know these eastern style of buddhist mandalas and and he was doing it as a way to to kind of connect with something bigger like he was also seeking enlightenment but then he also took another form of um of mandala making and gave it to his clients like his patients 
and had them do it as kind of like a way to check in with themselves. It was a, it was probably like a really early form of art therapy. Okay. And as far as like all the symbolism, I don't use it and think about it in the way that you're asking, but I think what's in, what can be done and what I think is interesting. See, like I make them and that's the part that's most important to me. And I don't really think about what I put in it. And I don't really go back and reflect on them a lot because for me, it's the making. But for other people, I think it can be really interesting to, to, to be mindful of the images that come up again and again in their mandalas and to look more into that. And it doesn't even have to be like, oh, I've drawn a bird or what. I mean, it can just be, I see a lot of triangles. I see a lot of the color purple. I see a lot of um, round things, you know, like they tend to be more fluid. They tend to be more edgy. And, and I think like you can, you can, I think it's fun to like, look at that because not, you know, like not everybody's going to have this, a similar type of mandala practice or not everybody's going to have a similar type of art practice, but I, I'm really, I, I don't, you, I don't typically utilize the word intuitive when I talk about my art practice, yeah. but it, but it is that, you know, like I'm working from whatever comes up. And, and I like to maybe say spontaneous, you know, like I'm, I'm allowing myself to be spontaneous and in the moment of my creations. Mm. And, and by doing that, you know, that's where different symbols and things can come up. I've never, I've never really, I love things to be really abstract, like really, like I really don't incorporate a lot of like real life forms into my work, but I've seen it. Like when I've taught people how to make windows, I see it all the time you know, different things that, that they'll incorporate. And so I think it's, you know, just, I think it's fun to, to contemplate what comes up, mm. you know, and, and maybe, you know, like there's a, a woman out there, I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but she had, uh, she had written one or two really, uh, I, think, I don't know if it's Judith Campbell. I could, I could totally not be having her name right. But there's this woman who, who, and she's no longer, she's no longer living, but she had a process where she started with a circle, which is the process that Jung worked with his patients. And she would have people kind of meditate and, and when an image came to them to put it in the circle, that, that's like not a process I've ever worked with, but it's definitely a very valid form of, of, of mandala making or contemplation, etc. I hope that maybe speaks to the question that you had. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I read about Jung just in terms of dream analysis. Cause I dream every mm-hmm. night and I write down my dreams and then, you know, I'll see patterns and I'll try to, oh, yeah. you know, I think about what is this show about what I'm, fearful of or love or just just I try to learn from the dreams um and Young was of course really big on that and I think too that when we do make artwork sometimes things can come out and then we end up having an aha moment and learning about ourselves (laughs) very much so very much so for example um I guess it was like five or six years ago I was making a lot of paintings that were kind of sexy and romantic, um, 
or about like a mother and child. It was all about relationships. So you'd have two or three people in a in the picture plane, and then they're relating to each other. Mother might be holding a baby. Um, man and woman might be looking at each other. And I I did a bunch of these. It's really a whole series. And <clears throat> I realized a few years later that in every picture where I had a man and a woman, I'd have the man above mm-hmm. and the woman below kind of looking up at him. <laughs> and and I, I, you know, it was, oh my gosh, do I see men as actually on a higher plane or something? Like we, we are looking up at them. And, you know, and it just... It was one of those, it, when, once I saw that pattern, which it took a few years to process and to be able to really see that, because <laughs> I, I didn't see it before. It was right there, but I didn't see it. Um, I definitely learned something about myself, and then I had to you know, really think and process, and, you know, the, this, this is the meat of learning from our artwork. <laughs> I probably, I probably see... I draw things that are other than mandalas. A lot of that stuff is in my sketchbooks. And I did, I've done a number of different figural works. I'm not trained. Like, I've I've taught myself how to do everything. So it's not like, you know, my sketchbooks are filled with, um, you know, like, today I'm going to to practice this. Or, to, you know, the next day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to practice my figure drawing. Like, I don't really work that way. So the things that are in my in my sketchbooks are, are just like kind of all over the place, and I've done some large figural works that that have definitely taught me a lot about myself, like a, a, a lot, a lot, a lot about myself. And that's that's where like I think you know when you have a process that's open, where it's not just about like I'm always going to do this, like I'm going to be a painter and I'm only going to paint portraits, and I mean there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just that's not who I am, and that's not really the kind people that that I gravitate towards or who gravitate towards the work that I do Mm -hmm. and I think that when you allow yourself to be really free and and you do things over and over again like I think repetition is really important because well for some people for some artists it would be about improving their process like becoming a more technical skilled artist but I think when you allow repetition to happen it also can teach you about yourself, like, like, you know, this, this moment that you saw for, for sure. Um, yeah, you just have to be open to it. See, I think a lot of times I work with the mandala because I, I was fearful of not being a good enough artist in any other way, to, to be totally honest with you. And I'm not even really sure I've ever revealed that to anybody before, but, but I mean, I'm self-taught. And so there was always a lot of, of, of like, I'm not good enough. You know, when I first got my studio, I was placed across the hall from a master realist, a tempera painter. Like, he's amazing. He's won, like, every award you can possibly come up with. He's been doing it for his, his whole lifetime. And so here I am with, like, my scribbles, and I'm like, oh, my God, what did I do? But, you know, I think that, I think, you know, I was still able to access art through a process without having to to be technical and and feel it's like I I wanted to be able to still do something but not feel bad about it and so I was like well I'm just going to work with this form and I'm going to be you know like I'm just going to be the mandala maker then right but but you know even through the abstract stuff I learned about myself I learned about 
you know, the time I'm willing to dedicate to something, to creating something. I learned so much about materials because I've painted them, drawn them, you know, like I've worked in, in like, like every kind of media that you can possibly imagine to express myself through these. So it's like I, I learned and I, and I, and I was able to grow even though, you know, like I wasn't necessarily following a traditional path. But it's just, you know, allow repetition and learn from that. You know, like, you know, you you might be learning about, you know, uh, uh, an idea you have about about men and women. And I might be learning about, you know, this paint doesn't dry. You know, like it's just you're just still learning, you know, things through repetition. Right. There's so much to learn. Ah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the and the, one, one of the things that I found really fascinating, I started to look at the modern artists, which were like from just roughly like the late 1800s to like the 1960s. And a lot of what those artists were doing was, was like, they were paying a lot of attention to the, to the materials, mm. you know, it wasn't so much about like replicating um, and doing things with, you know, like replicating uh, the world as they see it and working through traditional methods. It was about using the materials in different ways. And I really resonated with that, you know, that it was about, you know, that, you know, to, to really just like feel the paint under the brush or like what happens when you thin the paint or when you add medium to paint or just any number of the billions of things that you can do with art materials other than I'm going to paint this portrait. You know, like it can just be about the the mark making. It can be about, you know, just doing things in, in different ways. Right, right. I think one of the things I love best about artwork is that there's always something to learn. And sometimes the learning is not so much in, you know, rigidly, did I just make up a word? Um, <laughs> like, like, like being real stiff and saying, okay, I'm going to be very exacting and trying to make this look as super realistic as possible. Sometimes the learning is in letting go of that and loosening. Um, other times it's being able to let go of the product at the end altogether. And then yeah. the next week it's, no, I'm back to, um, yes. I'm trying to really notice nature or whatever. There's just always something yes. to learn either about yourself. Yes. It was very, it's very dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was what I fought with for six years, you know, in my studio was, you know, I need to do this just for me, you know, and then it was like, I need to think about exhibition. And it's like, you know, I need to do this just for me. And then, you know, like, I need to buy these map boards so I can put things together so I can sell stuff and pay for the studio. Like, there was, there was, there was always something. And, and I wouldn't, like I said, I wouldn't trade any of it for the world. But it's kind like, it's really complicated. And I always tended to, to be much closer to the people I know who are art therapists and who have studied, you know, art for the purpose of, 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 um, of healing and growth and things like that, rather than the people who, who were interested in making things look a certain way. Although I still am interested in how did you do that? Like, you know, you know, like, 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 what did you use here? Because I'm interested in process. But not necessarily, I mean, like, of course I can, I can appreciate a beautiful piece of artwork, but it's different, you know, like, it's a different thing for me. And, and I think that, you know, using art for, for spiritual growth, 
if you choose to use it that way. It's, it's just incredibly powerful and it really is process, you know, like it's all process. And, and you even, you know, like you get to decide like what you have at the end. I did this thing where, so like, you know, creating $10,000, like it wasn't really a goal. It's just kind of how many I've made over the years. Right. And so that means like, I've got a lot of work and, you know, I've kind of always heard that you should keep all your artwork because a, it'll show you where you've been, you know, like it'll show you that you've got process that you, that you've grown and that's helpful. Um, in making us, you know, feel confident and things like that. But also, you know, like, cause then there's a body of work that you can sell, like potentially, you know, like if you're my friend who's been working for, for 50 years, his early works are, you know, is easily as valuable as, as his later works. But, you know, it depends again on why you're doing this. And, and, you know, like if you're doing something to just get it out, I used to talk about the mandala, like this cosmic sneeze. Like I was just kind of blowing my nose, getting it out and then I'm done with it. <laughs> so if, if I, if that was, you know, that was like one of my earliest beliefs in this process until a friend was like, but you know, I wouldn't even call myself an artist. I'm like, I'm just doing this thing, you know? And this person was, you know, what one of my mentors was like, you know, like you make art, you're an artist. And all of a sudden I, I got it in my mind that I had to identify as the artist and, and then everything grew from there. But if I go back to that idea of it just being like an expression that needs to get out, why am I saving 10,000 pieces of artwork? I mean, you know, so I started to destroy things. Like, I've been destroying things all along, but, you know, I've become more open about that process on Facebook. In fact, one of my artist friends was like, you should stand there on a first Friday open house and tear work up. He's like, you should do it in front of people. And I just never got around to it, but that would have been brilliant, you know? Because it, it's it's like, you know, you I think to a certain degree, artists want to be seen. And so I, I, I had this bunch of paper work and I shredded it and like I ripped it up and it, it always feels good. And I took pictures of it and I put it on Facebook and people went crazy. Why did you do that? Why didn't you donate the work? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And it just, you know, I looked at that and it made me go rip up more work. Like it, it actually inspired me to go destroy more. And then... um uh, an, ar an artist who I really admire popped on and said, maybe save some of that and play around with collage, which I did. And then it opened up like a whole new thing. So, you know, I think, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a rigidity in, in holding onto all the old work, you know, like I like the, there, there's a website called Quora where people like ask questions and other people answer questions. Sure. And somebody, I just answered a question the other day about, you know, like the person said, I'm running out of storage for my finished artwork. What should I do? And I went in there and I said, well, you know, I've destroyed a lot because that feels good. Like it's, it's very freeing to me. It isn't necessarily for everyone. You know, I made sure the work I destroyed that I wasn't super emotionally attached to it. Right. But you know, even if you were like, there could be growth in that too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, um, I do uh, burn pieces. I'll do, you know, all of a sudden, okay, I'm cleaning out and I just, you know, I'll purge things. And one of the first times I did that was, it was 2002 or something like that, but I had created a bunch of work in college and it was all very abstract expressionist, but it was about letting my emotions out and, um, you know, lots of, you know, pain over certain traumatic events and whatnot. And I decided, you know what, I don't even want for these pieces to be sold to somebody and to go in their home because they're yep. about painful things. 
It carries the energy. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, I burned a bunch of them and it felt great. Yep. Yeah. So, um, no, I'm all for let's burn it, um, or repurpose it or. This is, this, this is where you come back to that idea of selling things, you know, like where you asked and I said, you know, you need to think about the intent, like the original intention of, of why you're doing what you're doing. Because if you sit down and it's like, okay, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to like get really, you know, like I'm going to like cry and I'm going to like bring up all this stuff from the past that hurt me and I'm going to put it into this artwork and then, and then, and then in the back of your head going, and then I'm going to put it on exhibition, you know, or, or not. I shouldn't say it like that because sometimes people can, can, can create a body of work that way on purpose. Right. But it's more along the lines of what you think you should be doing. Hmm. with the selling that gets that complicates everything you know i've made this stuff i could make money from it so i should sell it and and i think that there's work that we do that's very personal that doesn't need to be shared that doesn't need to be sold and that maybe none of it needs to be sold ever Mm -hmm. but there's just you know this voice in our minds like if something's worth doing you know like if you're doing it you know, don't waste your time. You should be selling it. You should be making money. Like we get all these, you know, negative messages that complicate things. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, and I, I've also, I've had a lot of students who were new to painting and they would ask me, Hey, so I can, what do I have to do to start selling? And, um, I'm happy to answer those questions, of course, you know, how you, pay your taxes and whatever but um you know there's also part of the conversation that sometimes has to happen that oh you're not ready yet you just started right. yesterday and yeah. it, it's got to be something that you enjoy doing so much it doesn't matter whether you get paid or not <laughs> it's got yeah. it's got to have a bigger purpose behind it than just that because otherwise the work's going to fall flat it's yeah. not um it's it doesn't add anything. Like it doesn't right. add anything to the yeah. Right. Yeah, to the to the to the bigger picture of mm-hmm. of art of art existing in the world. You know, when we used to do the drum circles, one of my teachers would say, like, you know, if you could play anything in this moment, but think about how what you're doing is adding to the sound, you know, to like to the entire group. And I think that's that's something that's really important because I've watched lots of people, you know, I've watched people in my community, I've watched people on Facebook and Instagram and all these other places put work out that's, that's probably not ready. And it doesn't mean they're not good artists and it doesn't mean that they won't become good artists. But I think that they, there's such a rush to want to sell things to, to gain, to gain the, um, the feeling, you know, the, the good feeling with people buying stuff. Right. They they rush it out there. And, you know, like something else that I've noticed is that like when you first rush your stuff out there, your friends and your family will buy it. Right. And, and until they don't. Right. And then and then you're in this place of why are other people buying the work? It's like if you don't if you haven't gone to art school, which I didn't, I you like there's a critique process that happens. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a critique process where, where you learn to see. You know, like, uh, like other people are telling you, like, about your work in a way that you can potentially improve upon it. Right. And I think, you know, one of the big 
the big things about art making is also curation and and editing of your own work. Mm-hmm. And if you're just creating, creating, creating to like push things out there to sell, and you're not really doing that, you know, it's like, what kind of an artist do you want to be? Like, do you want to be, you know, somebody who's maybe at some point respected? for for their contribution, you know, in, in whatever form that looks like, then you have to kind of go through what everybody else goes through. Like, you have to go through the ups and the downs, the rejections, you know, you have to go through burning your work, and you have to, you know, go through, like, why do I do all this, and I just want to pack it in, and then sort of coming back out and saying, no, I've got this, and it's like a roller coaster ride. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that um, it, it can be very ego-driven, and you know our ego is there it's it's part of us um but i think that better things happen when we can let go of it and i'm reminded of one of my yoga teachers years ago she had us uh breathe in yes breathe in and say the word sat which means truth Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then breathe out, nam, which means name or identity or ego. <laughs> so we're breathing in the truth that, you know, all is one, and breathing out those names and identities and labels that are separating us from other people. And, um, and so <laughs> this is, part of the problem when we get into artwork and if, if it's if the number one reason you're creating it is to pump up your ego and because maybe you'll get some recognition um then i would say maybe that's not the most wise place to be coming from um and that ultimately y- your ego is not any better than my ego or any we're, we're all equals so we don't need that uh, pumping up who's best, who's worst. Oh, I feel so great when I've um, when I've uh, sh- I've shown through a, a, a competition that I'm the best. Mm-hmm. And on um, one of my podcast episodes a couple sessions ago, I talked uh, about how I don't want to be in competitions anymore, and I don't. Me neither. Want want to be yeah. a judge for competitions because I was asked to be a judge and I decided you know, I'm not going to mm-hmm. do this because I feel that it's um, it's just coming from the wrong place. I agree with you 100%. I looked over that. I looked over what you had done and I'm, I'm from there a lot. A lot of them, that's, a, you know, like that's a whole discussion within itself. <laughs> but I, but I think, I think that again, like you just really have to think about what you're trying to accomplish. Right. We all come from these, like, like we all have these core beliefs about ourselves. And if you believe you're not enough, you're going to seek it everywhere. You're going to seek recognition. You're going to seek approval any way you can get it. Right. And it's going to become this thing that constantly drives your actions. And, and, and sooner or later, it's going to, it's going to not be serving you. And then you're going to have to kind of unpack everything and untangle everything and get back to where you, where you really were. And that was a big part of, of why I gave up the studio was because 
I felt like I was operating from this from this place of, you know, I think I should be doing this because, you know, isn't this what you should be doing? Like, if you're an artist, shouldn't you do this and shouldn't you do that? And it just, it got to the point where, like, I couldn't, I couldn't connect anymore. And it just, it gave me, like, a, a lot of internal conflict. Right. But, you know, there's just, I don't know, there's a lot of people who choose not to be self-aware at all. You know, no, you know, there's artists and non-artists alike. Right. But I think, like, if you find you're not achieving what you want to achieve in life, if you're not the person who you want to be, you have to sit down and you have to look at everything. Just like if you're trying to paint a house and it, and it looks flat or like you have to look at that and you have to identify the different things that would make it look differently. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you need to do to change that? You know, like how do you need to shadow? How do you need to work with light to make the, make the house look different? Just like, you know, like if, if I'm often negative or I'm often complaining, what do I need to do to look at myself and change that? But there are people who, who, who don't even look at any of those things. Like they just, op- they just operate. Like they just move forward and they don't, they don't take the time to look at any of those things. And I think an art is really necessary. Like I think it's, it's an, and I think, you know, most artists do it to some degree, but there's just like this, this feeling of, well, I can just sell that. Like, I can sell that and make, make money. I met a, I met a, a student, a local university student, um, years ago. Uh, I was asked to sit on a panel, um, of a, of a class. It was about art entrepreneurship. And this student had no art background, was not taking any art in the school, and yet wanted to speak to me because they they wanted to they wanted to use art to make some passive income, but they but it wasn't really their thing and and I was really fascinated by that that there would be like this belief that that anyone could just do something connected to the arts and that it would make money because most artists aren't making money you know <laughs> but that and so it just was it just was very very interesting and interesting to me. The person did not end up following through on that, but it was it was um still an interesting dialogue to have. Mm-hmm. Like you, you you there's I say, you know, like this is something that it's really important to come from the heart. And and once you've done the work, like then you then you decide what to do with it. It's like it's like putting the cart in front of a horse to just be like, I want to be this person who sells. And when you, when you, when you made as much as I did, like when you made so, so much physical work, I kept thinking like, I can't, I can't not be trying to make money. You know, like I need to be trying to make money out of this because it'll, it'll make me feel, you know, worthy of even having the studio of of calling myself an artist. Right. Right. Well, you know, I think, I think there's folks out there who are suffering through <laughs> that side of the art world. It's like they, they don't know what they don't know. You know, sometimes it just takes time, like like my paintings where yeah. I realized, oh, there's some weird women's issues behind this. You know, sometimes you just, they wake up all of a sudden. But you don't have to suffer through it. And... Ah... Uh, the big heavy sigh. I know. I wish I could turn it off. I wish I could turn the suffering off. Um, but see, that's 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 where I think you go back to it being a meditative process. You know, like 
when you're when you allow yourself to turn all that stuff off like i feel like i had such a better time with the with the actual art making before i had the studio when i could just sit down and i could just make these mandalas because it was about making them and it was about growth and it was about quieting the mind i feel like it was so much easier then but that doesn't mean you know like the process i went through from then to now didn't you know wasn't worthy and it and, and it wasn't it wasn't that I didn't have a good time, you know, like I learned much, you know, I, I grew, I, I developed great relationships, like all, all kinds of great stuff. But I feel like it was a lot less complicated when I just did the work for personal growth. Right. And that was one of the things I wanted to get back to by take, by taking myself out of that. But, you know, I'm still showing stuff on Facebook. I'm still communicating. Like I'm still active on social media. People still know who I am. I didn't fall off a cliff. I didn't abandon the Mandala process. Like I'm still this person who's done all these things. And, you know, I just, I just kind of want to get back to, um, I want to get back to, to doing things more for me. I just, um, I just created, I, I don't do a lot of digital artwork, but I've done some. And I just did this digital mandala in a 4K format, which is like big. And I've never printed anything like that. So I had no idea how it would come out. And so I took it to Staples. I took the image to Staples and had a three foot, like basically just like a Xerox, like just like a laser jet print made for like seven bucks. And I did it and just to see, like, what, it, what does this look like really big? Like, does it hold up? You know, I didn't know whether or not the detail would hold. And, the, and then, like, the first thing that comes to my mind is that would make a cool tapestry. And I show it on Facebook and, oh, you know, like, that that would look great on pillows or, like, you could put your work on fabric or whatever. And then I'm like, no, 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 no. I just want it. I just, you know, like, it's like you have to, you have to, you know, be mindful of how you put things out into the world because things are going to echo back on you and then you have to sort through that. So it's like, you can't really go, you know, well, I guess we could go be hermits on a mountain who create, but you know, most people are not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. Lessons to be learned. Lessons to be learned. Okay, so what's your favorite art book or personal story? can't believe it, but this is our last question. <laughs> um, you know, I saw that question, and, and I, went, I went right to one thing. Okay. There's a book called The Mission of Art written by a man named Alex Gray. And Alex Gray is, uh, he's, very widely, he's very widely known as a visionary artist. And, and when I use visionary in that term, it's because he's known for using a lot of substances to expand the mind. So he's looking, he's looking to like get closer to enlightenment and then depict the things he sees. Okay. Like this is, this is his thing. He's very, very, he's very well known for this. He also has a TEDx talk and that's actually how I kind of got to mine was by talking to him about it. Okay. So he wrote um he wrote a book like his work is very deep it's very heady like all his artwork all of his written work like everything's pretty deep and <clears throat> I had gone to see his artwork when he had a gallery in New York City a number of years ago and it kind of really was a little too deep for me at the time and I just kind of like packed it away and like didn't really think much of it again and when I was teaching for a couple of years I would I would teach at this one retreat and and the person who ran the retreat 
said, <clears throat> you know, every year, like, bring something new, you know, like, bring something new to, like, you know, a, an idea to share with people. And so I would kind of, I would kind of pull these different books out, and the mission of art kept popping up, but I'm like, that's by that guy who did that work that was kind of above my head, and I can't really go there. And then I come to this point where I'm feeling very, like, why am I doing all this? Why am I creating this work? Because... Like, I didn't, I just didn't really feel worthy of being an artist doing the kind of work I did. And I was, I was really having a lot of self-doubt. And, and this book kept popping up. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to try it. And what Alex Gray basically describes in this book is the importance of artwork, of, of the process of art making, because it, it connects us to that bigger thing like you don't have to take drugs to do it but it's just you know that the art making process like that we're depicting things that are in our heart in our minds like in our soul in our dreams or whatever that that we're that we're doing these things to to basically you know either depict god get closer to god whatever anybody's version of god is the book's amazing there's so much there's so much it, it basically gave me permission to be who i am and and on the heels of that, he <clears throat> he does um him and his wife Allison, they're both they're both visionary artists, and they've had uh they had the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors in New York City for a while. It was a gallery. They moved over to Wappingers Falls, New York, and they have um they're building this visionary museum called Entheon. They had one of like the most successful Kickstarters in history for an art project to like build this this visionary art museum and they had this this visionary painting intensive that they held at their they they hold it once a year at their property and I went and I took it because I wanted to kind of be I always believe in get as close to the source as you can so I wanted to go and spend time with him so I could learn you know more about you know his his beliefs behind art making and 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 about his experience with doing the TEDx talk and everything. And so the book was pretty important to me in a, in a lot of different ways. I don't necessarily, um, like, I, I don't, I don't use mind altering substances to, to get into the work the way he did, but I did learn that through things like meditation and chanting and drumming and yoga and meditation, that you can actually expand the mind in that way because we've got natural chemicals in our body like that'll that'll kind of like become activated in those processes. Hmm. And uh yeah, so I I got to feel like I wasn't crazy by talking to him about that. It's like so I lay down and I meditate and sometimes I see things and he's like totally normal, you know, totally normal. I just do this so I can get there faster. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well I'll have to look that up because I haven't heard of that before. Yeah, the mission of art. The mission of art. Okay. Yeah, so I had another thought going back to our last little bit of conversation where we were talking about, you know, the ego and and suffering. And, um, you know, one thing that I've noticed is a lot of folks who, you know, they'll, they'll want to go through the reward system part of the art world. And... If somebody, you know, either gives them a, a literal award or says something nice about their piece or buys a piece, then they, the ego gets pumped up and they're like happy, happy, happy. Um, 
and they might have 10 happy things happen, you know, 10 little happy nuggets of, of uh, ego fulfillment. <laughs> um, and then if they're anything like me, you know, one negative comment or rejection and it's like crumple, you know, it derails oh, yeah. I'm worthless. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is terrible. And I think that when we notice, you know, it shouldn't be so high and low. <laughs> um, no. When we notice that there's an imbalance or we notice that this is causing extreme suffering, maybe there's something wrong with it, you know, and, and maybe Definitely. we should examine this, the whole structure and not say, oh, well, maybe it's because my artwork sucks. Maybe it's because we don't need the award in order to feel good about ourselves. Yeah. Um, or just be ourselves in the world or whatever. Um, they, you know, we, we don't have to beat ourselves up that way. And, um, and one of the things I like about this, your art journey that you've shared with us today is how you've said, you know, I, I noticed that, that being in the, the art gallery space that I was in wasn't working for me. And then you're willing to walk away from it and say, you know what? Man, fuck it. Not for me. (laughs) And so many people get so wrapped up in that, that they can never let it go or just see that it's not working for them. If it's not. It was really hard. We, Mm -hmm. the, the, the place I was at, um, there were, I think like maybe 26 resident artists. We all had private studios. They weren't super private. They were kind of open on the top because it was like a converted warehouse. But we were all there and, you know, we all came from different walks of life and we all worked in, in different mediums and, and had different life experiences. And I had from the get go a really difficult time feeling like I was in competition. Now, these people were great people there was no like you know there was no there was the competition was in my mind is what i'm trying to say you know these people were generous they were they were interesting they were helpful like you know like they it was not a competition but yet because we're doing things to try and make us feel better about ourselves when we talk about our achievements it 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 doesn't necessarily always make everyone feel better you know, and it's personal. Like, it's if I don't feel better, that's my junk. You know, like that's that's my crap. That's me for me to deal with. And it was overwhelming at times. It was really overwhelming. You know, for you know to be around um, people who worked so hard to gain their version of success. You know, like there, I don't, I don't really know a lot of other artists who enjoy being interviewed, who enjoy writing like I do. You know, so like these are things that that make me feel. Like I've accomplished something, you know, I was interviewed by PBS. I I love that. Like that makes me so happy that, that, that I had that opportunity to be interviewed by our our local PBS station, that there's a little video out there of that. You know, I'm, I'm really pleased that I put myself out there to do a TEDx talk. Other artists wouldn't necessarily want those things. They might want to have their work exhibited, you know, in a certain space, or they might want a museum to purchase a piece of their artwork. Like it can be anything. You know, like there's no set goals for what an artist can do. There's there's no single path. Right. But when you're surrounded by so many people doing so many different things, 
if you have low self-confidence or if you don't really know what you want, it can be pretty overwhelming, you know, and the competition thing, you know, like putting yourself out there for competition. I mean, that is, it's brutal, you know, it's brutal because if it, you know, there, there's always going to be people who are really good who enter competitions because they, you know, like, because they have a great chance of winning and it just almost immediately knocks everybody else out. And so, you know, like if you're, if you're entering things and I've done it, I've entered competitions, I've, I've spent money to apply for residencies. Like I've, I've joined professional organizations. I've done all these different things, trying to find a way to make myself feel better about myself. It doesn't come from that. Right. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't come from those things. If, if you, if you, if you're not walking with like a strong sense of self through those processes, they're going to make you feel like crap. And they made me feel like crap, despite all the other things I've done that I feel, you know, you know, other people might look at and say, hey, that's pretty, like, you did a TED Talk, that's cool. You know, like, right. it, it's just it's like, it, it's, it becomes meaningless, you know, <laughs> because, oh, I got this rejection. Not everything I've done, I'm worthless. You know, I'm just completely worthless. Um, it's hard. So it's like, you know, again, just like examining, examining all these things. But, you know, if you're willing to do that. Mm. Right. Well, then you can break on through to the other side and, and there's a really Yeah. It was crazy. You know, like I, I think that I probably, I was, I was in my studio for six years and I always worked in it. Um, I always worked with the door open because I wanted, I always wanted to invite dialogue, um, whether it was from like a, cause it was a public space and whether it was from like a small child who wanted to like, Hey, I could do that. You know, like, I wanted to give people permission to be creative by, by modeling my own behavior. And so I always worked with my door open. Like I, but it was, you know, it just, it just kind of became too much. And, and I think like it, it is important to recognize when something isn't serving you anymore. And the going all the way back to my drum instructor, you know, like when he used to like, you know, speak philosophical about, you know, our drumming and being mindful and being present and using it as an opportunity to ex to examine our habits and our patterns and things that are no longer serving us. And, you know, I just got to the point where I, I probably could have left it a couple of years ago, but I decided to keep pushing forward because it was such a big part of my identity, but it was the identity I thought I should have that I thought people wanted me to have. And right. But, you know, I, I miss having the physical space because I don't really have room in my house to create in the way I used to create. Um, and I, I miss people and I miss certain aspects of it, but at the same time, I'm really glad I let it go. Mm. And, you know, with, with art, it's, I feel like it's really, it can be really easy to kind of pigeonhole yourself. Like I would watch people who would, who would choose to create in a certain way. Like they would choose a certain painting style, a certain set of materials. And then I would look at that and think to myself, okay, they've kind of really locked themselves into that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, re I mean, I had somebody really early on say, don't call yourself a mandala artist because, you know, because then you're not going to be able to break away from it. And it's, and it's kind of like that. Like I think it's good to a certain degree to keep your options open. Um, so you can, you know, if you want to work with collage or you want to stop making mandalas or just whatever that you still can, you can feel okay with, with making these changes. Right. Right. Cause in, with change comes growth. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Whereas, uh, I think it was Ovid said the only constant is change. 
definitely. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for chatting with me. This was a great meaty conversation. I feel like we really went there and back. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, deep breath. Wasn't that a great interview with Stephanie Smith? Again, her website is com. If you're curious about learning more about what she does or looking at her work. <clears throat> Just to rift a little bit on what we talked about, um, I'd like to read for you the very first line in a book that I've been reading is called Making Art a Practice, 30 Ways to Paint a Pipe by Kat Bennett. The very first line is, as artists, we just want to be ourselves, as free and present as children, but with the insight that comes from experience. <laughs> Um, you know, and I'm reminded of how Picasso had been trained as a classical um, uh, artist. He learned drawing and painting in uh, art school in the traditional way. And then he said later in life that he, he wanted to go back to what it was like to be a child and have that fresh perspective where you aren't burdened by all of the rules and regulations of the art world. Okay. Um, and then going back to our quote of the day by Henri Matisse, Matisse said, I'll repeat, an artist must never be a prisoner. An artist should never be a prisoner of himself, prisoner of style, prisoner of reputation, or a prisoner of success. What did he mean by that? He meant what Stephanie and I were talking about, how we can get really wrapped up in this is the way things should be. This is the way uh, the structure of the art world works, and so I must fit myself into that box. Um, it means um, breaking free of those restrictions and defining success in your own way uh, defining style in your own way and getting to the heart of the matter, getting to what's real. And I think a very important part of getting to what's real is being flexible. And to illustrate that point, I'm going to share with you briefly a story by the uh, ancient philosopher Aesop. Once upon a time, there was an oak tree and a set of reeds on the side of the shore of the lake. One day, a big wind came billowing up through the space, and it made the reeds go to and fro. And the oak tree, he just stood tall. And the oak tree looked down at the reeds and said, oh. How sad that he can't stay so straight and strong. But then the next day, a hurricane came. And when the hurricane 
blew its mighty, mighty wind. The reeds, just as the day before, went whack, 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 whack. They, they, they flowed with the wind. And that oak tree, sadly, because he was so rigid and tried to resist the wind, he was toppled over and fell. And Aesop, if you know anything about Aesop, he's got to have a lesson at the end of every single one of his, his fables. The lesson of the oak tree and the reeds is that it's better to yield when it is folly to resist than to resist stubbornly and be destroyed. So how can we apply this to the lessons that we've learned today uh, from chatting with Stephanie Smith? What I'm learning today is the importance of going with the flow, having your your practice and and dedicating yourself to your practice, but being able to be flexible enough to change and notice when something's not working for you. A funny little example recently, I, I, you know, I'm a podcaster, obviously, right? You're listening to my podcast right now. Well, I love listening to other people's podcasts as well. And I had gotten so into listening to the podcast all the time when I'm doing my artwork, when I'm doing my chores. And anytime I didn't have to be standing in front of somebody and talking to them, I was listening to podcasts and then I realized that my hearing was starting to get bad. <laughs> and my ears one day even hurt. And so I said to myself, whoa, okay, maybe I need to uh, step back from this, not listen as often. And I got some better ear uh, earphones, uh, earbuds. Um, so that might help as well. But now, uh, since I've realized that, I kicked back to just listening to maybe one a day, if that, as opposed to all day long, every single second that I possibly could. So what's important is to listen to our body, listen to our reactions that's going on deep down in the gut. Does this feel right? Does it feel wrong? And I'm, of course, not saying that it, you know, if you went into an art class and it was a little, you know, it challenged you. You don't want to just throw in the towel the second you get a little bit of challenge. But notice if over time and dedication with your practice, something's just really not working. Be willing to change so that you can grow. Ah. And maybe soon we'll grow into springtime and everything will be blooming and green again. Ah, I say this as there is um, an inch of snow outside my door and it is a very cold day. <laughs> but there's always tomorrow. Alright. Well, my friends, this concludes our Alchemy of Art podcast for today. Maybe stories about art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice. You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. 
To find out more about Annie Hurston and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T.com. Thank you.